Uh, it's called Jewish Worldwide Mission Ministries. Um, my ministry has taken me into about 37 countries, and uh, we've been into various areas of the world. We just recently returned from Israel. Um, we were there for two weeks and almost two weeks, and then uh, also uh, we've been to England, uh, uh, Philippines, uh, Ukraine, um, Germany, Vienna, um, Costa Rica, and just a, a whole lot of other places. And uh, and God has uh, allowed me to go into these areas, uh, such as Cuba. In, in Cuba alone, we've seen over 10,000 people saved in the last 10 years. And uh, we praise God for that. Um, but our ministry is to a people, not to a place. A lot of missionaries go to a place, and that's fine. Uh, but Jewish people are scattered worldwide. More Jews live outside of Israel than live inside of Israel. As a matter of fact, just until recently, uh, the United States had more Jews than Israel had. And, uh, but the United States still has 25 of the 40 largest cities in the world of Jewish population. Uh, you don't have to go very far to find Jewish people in, in, in America. As a matter of fact, New York City is the largest city in the world of Jewish population. Ukraine has four of the 40 largest cities in the world of Jewish population. So between the United States and Ukraine, you're talking about almost 75% of the 40 largest cities in the world of Jewish population. Uh, our ministry, as I said, is worldwide. We're supported uh, by local churches and individual families. Uh, God has uh, graciously um, kept us on the uh, on the trail, if you will. Uh, this is uh, my 20th year in Jewish missions. Before that, I pastored for 30 uh, for 12 years, and uh, and then God called me into Jewish missions. So I understand both sides of missions and church as a pastor, former pastor. And uh, uh, I'm thankful for each and every uh, church and individual that supports our ministry and partners with our ministry. And that's what they do. They partner with our ministry. I couldn't go if they didn't give. And, and, uh, and so God has called me to go into all the world and preach the gospel to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now, I see a lot more Gentiles saved than I do Jewish people because Jewish people are still blinded in part uh, uh, by God, because of their rejection of Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. One of the places I've gone to uh, 19 times is the, the country of Ukraine. And Ukraine has been in the news uh, almost every day. Uh, and, and sadly, for the past year, they've been involved in a war uh, with Russia. And so uh, Today, I thought maybe you'd be interested in this being an Israel End Time Prophecy Conference in understanding something about that war that's going on between Russia and Ukraine. So I've entitled this message, uh, Russia's Invasion of Ukraine. Uh, Ukraine, uh, I have, my heart, <laughs> you know, I've, I've helped plant two churches in Ukraine. I have some wonderful, wonderful friends living there. As a matter of fact, I have a family of Ukrainians that are, uh, are living in the, uh, the former parsonage of my home church in Cold Grove, Ohio. And, uh, and so, and I support um, uh, Ukrainian uh, who just began his deputation uh, to be a missionary um, in uh, Armenia. And so uh, I, I hope that uh, you will pray for the folks 
there in Ukraine. I, I want to begin by talking about this man right here. Most of you are familiar with Vladimir Putin. And uh, Vladimir Putin is a self-proclaimed uh, dictator, really, is what he is. Uh, he's, he's voted him. He's changed the laws to enable him to stay in power for much longer than initially. The first time I went to Ukraine uh, was back in 1999. And uh, I got off the plane from Vienna, Austria, on Austrian Airlines. We flew into Nipopetrov, Ukraine. And, uh, and I took a picture of the aircraft that we flew in on. And so we walked out, and uh, we walked into the airport, rather, was getting ready to go through passport control. And uh, while we were there, two soldiers grabbed me by the arm and escorted me back, uh, back to the uh, to the beginning of the airport where we just walked in and they, they took me into this little side room. And the first thing that went through my mind was the last thing my wife told me before I left America. She said, don't do something stupid and get sent to Siberian salt mines. Yeah. So I hadn't been there five minutes and I was already being arrested by uh, two soldiers and communism was not dead at that time. Uh, and, and Dr. Bob Gray uh, after I was, they were talking about me taking a picture and they wanted my camera and I wouldn't let them have it. And, and, <laughs> you know, what can I say? I used to coach wrestling. I was ready to go, go head to head with them. But, uh, then, uh, so I went back. Finally, they took the film out of my camera and then I went back and Dr. Gray said to me, he said, the bear's not dead. He's just hibernating. Communism had fallen, but the bear's not dead. He's just hibernating. And when I saw this picture, I thought, about Dr. Gray saying that to me. And of course we know that Russia is trying to become the former Soviet Union it once was. And so uh, they, we watched the, the, the 30 or 40 miles of tanks rolling into Ukraine. We saw all of that on television. We saw these soldiers, you know, um, coming in and basically having their way. Uh, I told my good friend, uh, Eugene Kosachenko, I said, uh, Eugene, you need to get your family out of there because this really looks bad. And, and no one gave Ukraine more than a week or two uh, to stand against uh, uh, Russia, including me. And uh, so he got his family out of Ukraine, but he and his uh, oldest son uh, stay. Anyone that's 18 to 60 had, had to stay. And so uh, we saw on TV, this is the airport that I flew into um, just uh, a year before last. I was there a year ago, April. And, uh, and it says airport in Russian, and this is the same airport today. And uh, they, Russia bombed it and, and blew it up, and so it's no longer there. Uh, civilians, Ukrainians, began to learn how to fight and fire guns and uh, the bombs kept coming into Ukraine, and uh, NATO and Western countries started sending military weapons to help the Ukrainians, um, and they began to learn how to fire some of these weapons, even babushkas in Russian, old woman. That's what babushka is in Russian. Um, they, they were learning how to fire uh, weapons in order to defend their country, and uh, this is Kiev, the, the, the capital city of, of Ukraine, and I had just flown into Kiev and then took a train from there to Nipopetrov um, just uh, a year before this war broke out. 
And uh, this is some of the residential sections in Ukraine. This is what the people have to deal with every day. This is another babushka who's lost her home. She has her entire life's possessions in that plastic garbage bag, and she has nowhere to live. Um, again, you see Ukrainians uh, proudly waving their flags. This was the train station that I um, took a train in Kiev from. You can see how sparsely populated it was. This was the day after the war began. And uh, you can see the trains were being filled with people trying to flee. And uh, it's just amazing. This is the city uh, in Kiev. This is the, the main square in the middle of the city where people would gather for concerts and things. And we, I've been there and I've passed out gospel tracts and I've witnessed the people there many times. And uh, you can see this particular crowd, one of the pictures that I uh, was able to snap when I was witnessing at one of the, uh, one of the concerts that they were having here. And, and of course, uh, Russia began to bomb this capital city trying to blow it up. And they pretty much did blow up a lot of it. This is a child looking at what it used to be its home. And uh, all of that breaks my heart. Uh, on the other side of the country, southeastern part uh, on the Sea of Azov uh, is a city called Mariupol. Now, you're probably familiar uh, with that name. It's been on the news because this is where Russia was really concentrating and bombing this city to oblivion. They were trying to use it as an example of what would happen to all of Ukraine if the people did not succumb to the Russian armies. And uh, I've been to Mariupol. Uh, Dr. Glenn Matthews and I went there and I held a tent meeting. And uh, we both would preach every night. We passed out full Bibles to uh, Ukrainians who had no Bibles. And we had a big tent and people would come. I, held, uh, I hired a, uh, an orchestra from Zaporozhye another city that's in the news. And uh, this orchestra came and they played music and it drew a crowd because the Ukrainian people are so culturally uh, inept to that that they, they, when they hear music, they want to see where it's coming from. And uh, it drew a crowd. You can see the tents that we had. 750 people filled this tent and there were probably four or five people deep on the outside looking in, trying to hear, trying to see what they could see. And we gave Bibles out to everyone that came we held that for three nights. You can see the people coming out of the woodwork, it seems like, uh, literally, and uh, coming to the meetings. And uh, we saw hundreds of people come to know Jesus Christ there in Mariupol. Um, this is the city of Mariupol today. This is where they would bomb, and they bombed a steel factory there. And uh, it was so tragic. Uh, the pictures at the top, this is what Mariupol looked like before the same buildings at the bottom after the bombings of Russia. Uh, this is the main city uh, square. Look at what they've done to that city. This woman here, a Jewish woman, 91 years of age, survived the Holocaust. But during this war, she was forced to stay in the basement of their apartment building. The gas had been turned off. Electric had been turned off. They had very little food, if any. And after so many weeks of this confinement in this basement, um, Vanda uh, Semenyanova uh, died uh, in the war. They buried her across the street where I held that tent meeting. In that park, she's buried today, froze to death. This is the 
Kazachinko family, minus uh, Nikita, who's not in this picture. He's the oldest son. Uh, he was back in uh, Ukraine when this picture was taken, uh, and he was uh, filling in for his father as pastor of the church. In Nipopetrov, which is like the Pittsburgh of Ukraine, it's a steel industry, big steel mill there on the Nipper River. Um, we held uh, meetings, uh, open-air meetings like this one, um, and people would hear the gospel and get saved. From my hotel room, I took a picture of this synagogue. This is the largest synagogue in Europe, and uh, it's in the middle of Nipopetrov, called the Menorah. And, of course, the Jewish population with his uh, tefillin on his head and uh, his tallit, his prayer shawl wrapped around uh, his body. Uh, this is Eugene uh, Kosachinko. He's translating for me uh, as I'm preaching in a nearby city. Uh, any PowerPoint that I do has to be translated into Russian. And so I have two computers going. I have one in Russian and one in English. Um, but uh, God has blessed, and we've seen many souls saved. There's a picture of Nikita, the oldest son. He's much older than that now. But uh, this was an orphanage where we're preaching, and uh, the little children that would come up and get saved, and then they want a hug. And, uh, of course, I, I like to hug. I, I just got a hug from a young lady back there. Uh, what was, where's she at? I don't see her. Anyway. Uh, one of the men back there had a daughter. She walked up and hugged me. Uh, but this is uh, this man here. This is Evan Kazachenko, and he was uh, 14 years old. And uh, I had the privilege of leading him to Christ that last time we were there. Now this is Eugene and his son Nikita. They're they're in the army now, so to speak, and uh, they're serving as chaplains. Uh, they're preaching to the soldiers, and uh, um, they're trying to uh, do whatever ministry they can possibly do in Ukraine. They're praying at the bedside of wounded soldiers. They're leading a man to Christ here. Um, this is his whole family. You can see the whole family now. Uh, Olga, his wife. And um, it's just an incredible thing to be able to go there. I want to talk about the prophecy in Ezekiel chapters 38 and 39. So if you have your Bible, open your Bible to Ezekiel 38. And I want to... Uh, Read a few verses, and then I'm going to ask you, why is it so relevant in our day, this war between Russia and Ukraine? And today I want to talk to you a little bit about that. And so we'll begin by looking at the first four verses of Ezekiel 38. Beginning in verse 1, And the word of the Lord came unto me, saying, <clears throat> Son of man, set thy face against Gog, the land of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, prophesy against him, and say, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I am against thee, O Gog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. And I will turn thee back and put hooks into thy jaws, and I will bring thee forth. First of all, let's have a word of prayer. Father in heaven, help us to glean from your word now. Uh, help us to rightly divide the word of truth, to be sensitive to your leading. Father, I pray that uh, people would be attentive to your word and responsive to your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. When I think about this verse, you have a man named Gog, G-O-G. That's a man. It's an individual man. He's the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal. Uh, many believe that Meshach and Tubal re refer to Moscow and to Bolsk. What we see is a, this leader, Gog, who's going to form an alliance an end-time alliance. Now, 
Will this happen before the rapture of the church or after the rapture of the church? My answer is, I don't know. Neither do you. No one does. I know lots of people say they do, but they don't know. Because the Bible doesn't tell us. The Bible says it will happen in the latter times. The last days. It doesn't say before or after the rapture. And so what we see here is that God says, I am going to put hooks into thy jaws, O Gog of Magog, the chief prince of Meshach and Tubal, and bring thee forth. Now, it's God who's going to initiate this. You say, well, why would God do that? I don't know. But God is sovereign. And like I said this morning in Sunday school hour, uh, the sooner we realize how sovereign God is, the better off we'll be. And so we know that God says, I'm going to put hooks into thy jaw. What would God use to entice Russia to invade Israel? Because that's the invasion. It's an invasion, an end time invasion of Israel. What would entice Russia and its allies to invade that little tiny country of Israel? Hour and a half wide by car, five hours long by car, the 5,781 years deep in history. What would entice Russia to do that? And I thought about four things. First of all, I thought about Russians' greed, uh, the economic hook, if you will. And so when you look at the economy of, 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 of Israel today, it's incredible. They, they have a greater gross national product than all of the countries surrounding them combined. And so uh, Israel just recently found oil and uh, where there's oil, there's natural gas, and all of that's important because it's really boosted their economy. Uh, when you think about the Dead Sea, think about the, it's worth trillions of dollars, enough to pay off the national debt of America. The bromine, the potash, and all the other minerals and different things that can be found and harvested from that particular uh, sea. We were just there um, just a few weeks ago. And, uh, and then, of course, when you think of the produce in the Jezreel Valley and uh, think about all of that and, and all of the produce. Israel actually supplies their enemies with produce grown in Israel. And they don't have just one harvest a year. They have many harvests a year. You say, look here, those are hogs. And Jews don't eat pigs. No, neither do Arabs. So why do they have hogs? Why do they have a hog farm near Nazareth? And I've seen the hog farm, so I know where it's at. I've been there. And uh, I'll tell you why they have them. Because they sell them to American tourists. <laughs> they know how we like bacon, sausage, and ham. Amen? If you're a good Baptist, you know what I'm talking about. Notice that these hogs are walking on pallets. The rabbis say they're not walking on Israel. They're suspended between heaven and earth. So they're actually not defiling the land of Israel. Uh, Oy vey, business is business, they say in Hebrew. They have an olive uh, industry, one of the greatest olive industries. How many of you know what uh, extra virgin olive oil is? How many of you ladies use that? Now put your hand back down because you don't because Kroger sells it and what they sell, it's a lot cheaper than what it's worth. Real extra virgin olive oil will cost you $100 a bottle. It's, it's a lot more expensive than what we buy, what's called extra virgin olive oil in America. The flower industry, this is called the Rosa Sharon Sharon, like Ariel Sharon, the prime minister that was, had, you know, was once in office. Um, 
we, we call it the Rose of Sharon, but it's actually pronounced Sharon. And uh, when you look at all of these flowers, now, what does Holland sell? Tulips. And did you know that Holland gets its tulips, most of its tulips, from Israel? How about that? And when you think about the diamond cutting uh, and diamond exporting business, Israel's number one in the world. Second hook that I thought about was uh, the Islamic hook. And think about this. Uh, the Arab world was united back in the uh, 600s uh, by a man named Muhammad. Muhammad. And uh, today, uh, Islam has grown to more than 2 billion Muslims in the world. More than 2 billion. Think about that. Amazing. When you look at these pictures, look at all of these things. Can you imagine what would happen if Christians went out there and had a sign that says, Behead those who insult Christianity? Well, we'd be on Fox News or CNN News or one of those news stations because we would be persecuted for saying that. But Muslims do that all the time and get by with it. Nobody wants to offend the Muslims. And uh, folks, listen, there's something wrong with that picture. There's something wrong in the world today where we allow one sect to do that and, and we don't permit the rest or others to do that. When you look at all these pictures, what part of the world do you suppose those pictures are from? Most of you would say the Middle East, right? Can you believe it? They're from, they're from Russia. They're from Russia. Why? Because Russia today is made up 35% of Russia and this population is made up of Muslims. How about that? You see, Putin has been courting the Islamic world for several years now. And uh, they are permitted to block the streets of Moscow uh, during Ramadan and other uh, festivals that the, the Muslims uh, uh, watch. The strategic hook, that's the third hook I was thinking of. The third hook. Russia's military might. And of course, uh, whoever controls Israel, right here is Israel. It, it's the crossroads to three different continents. Europe, Africa, and Asia. And uh, the Suez Canal. If you control the Suez Canal, shipping would have to go all the way around the tip of Africa to get to the west. And uh, so that's obviously a strategic location. The Golan Heights. If you're going to attack Israel the most vulnerable part of Israel would be the Golan because on the west side you have the Mediterranean Sea. And, and, and to the south uh, you have vast desert, the Negev Desert. And so the best place to attack Israel is from the Golan Heights, the northeastern portion, which borders Syria. And uh, I take my groups there. I take a, a host a tour there every year. If you've never been to Israel but would like to, um, I just finished my 19th tour of Israel. I took uh, 47 people, 48 the last time, 42 before that. If any of you would like to get a group together and go with me, we'd love to have you go. Uh, but I always take them up on the Golan Heights, and we, we look at the Valley of Tears, and, and we stop at a few other places. And on the way up, uh, you'll see this barbed wire fence and you'll see a, a yellow sign in writing uh, in Hebrew, writing in English, writing in Arabic. And uh, what it says in English is danger, mines. 
And then here in Hebrew, it says, danger mines. And I had an Israeli guide told me, he said, yeah, in Arabic it says, welcome picnic tables. <laughs> I'm just kidding. He was, he was joking, of course. When you think about the allies of Gog, and what we see in Ezekiel 38 and 39 is what's called specific predictive prophecy. Specific predictive prophecy, where God names names. And uh, a specific people, places, or, or, or countries. And I will bring thee forth and all thine army, horses and horsemen, all of them clothed with all sorts of armor, even a great company with bucklers and shield. And what we see in this particular prophecy, Ezekiel 38 and 39, which I think is probably the most relevant prophecy in the Bible, because we're watching it unfold before our eyes on the news. Persia, Ethiopia, Libya. You see how he's mentioning certain countries with them. All of them with shield and helmet. Gomer and all his bands. The house of Tugarma of the north quarters and all his bands. And many people with thee. In the day of Ezekiel, these countries had nothing in common. Nothing. You say, well, what countries are they? Well, let's take a look at it. First of all, we have Gog. He's the leader of this coalition, this end time alliance. Then we have Magog, Meshach, and Tubal, which all refer to Russia. Persia, which is Iran, um, Ethiopia and Sudan, which refers to Western Africa, Libya, Northern Africa, Gomer and Tagarma, which refers to Turkey. How many of you have seen these names in the news lately? And in and, and a, and a favorable light with Russia, because Turkey and Russia are getting real cozy, and Turkey's part of NATO. Turkey's part of NATO. And so what we see here is all of these different countries who had nothing in common with each other when Ezekiel penned this prophecy. So what is going to unite these countries in these last days? I think the answer is very painfully obvious, and the answer can be given in one word, Islam. I think God is allowing Islam to bring to fruition many of these prophecies, especially this particular prophecy. Because it has to do with uh, Russia and these other Muslim countries today. Now, today, Russia is, is conducting joint war games with many of these countries that we just mentioned, plus China. And uh, you can see them doing all of these different maneuvers. Russia is continuing to test NATO defenses. Uh, just a few years ago, Russia said that uh, NATO was its main uh, enemy, its main rival. And that Russia's military might was unmatchable. <laughs> Tell that to Ukraine. Ukraine's been battling for a year. And Ukraine, I'm telling you, they don't have near the technology that Russia claims to have. As a matter of fact, even the people of Russia are revolting against Putin and his decision to be in Ukraine. Because many of them have relatives in Ukraine. Ukraine was the largest Soviet satellite of the Soviet Union. And so... They speak Russian. So I speak a little Russian too. And so, you know, that's the language of Eastern Ukraine. And Western Ukraine now is speaking more Ukrainian. So why is this prophecy so relevant? Ezekiel 38, 16 says, And thou shalt come up against my people of Israel as a cloud to cover the land, and shall be wind in the latter days. 
Israel is God's timepiece. You want to know what time it is in God's prophetic calendar? Look at Israel. In the Bible, Israel's always God's timepiece. We're living, my friend, in the last days. Some people don't like to hear that, but the fact of the matter is we're living in the last days. How will Israel possibly survive such an attack? There'll be attack from the north, south, east, and west. And here's the answer. God will defeat Gog. That's how. There's no other means. There's no other way possible for Israel to survive an attack of this magnitude unless God fights the battle. You know, we all say Joshua fit the battle of Jericho. Wrong. God fit the battle of Jericho. It was God. I was just there not long ago. I saw the little bit of wall that was left and had, uh, you know, the, the harlot's house on top. Rahab the harlot. Remember that? She had a scarlet cord in her window. That's the only part of the wall that didn't fall. I preached a message right in front of it. And so God will defeat Gog. Uh, how? If you read Ezekiel 38 and 39, you'll find out he uses an earthquake. He causes confusion among the fighters and they shoot each other. He uses disease. He uses natural disasters. Nobody can get credit. Not the United States. Not the United Nations. Not NATO. Not even the Israeli Defense Force can take credit for defeating this invasion. It's God who defeats Gog. So why does God even allow such a war? Good question. Fair question. God's not intimidated by your questions. Ask God. You know, he may not give you the answer, but ask God. It's all right. So why would God allow this war to take place? And he tells us in Ezekiel 39, 7, he says, So I will make my holy name known. Reason number one, in the midst of my people Israel. I will not let them pollute my holy name anymore. Second reason. Thirdly, and the heathen shall also know that I am the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. Three good reasons why God allows this war. Ultimately, so that he is glorified. So that he is glorified. I don't know if you've had a war in your heart lately, but if you've never been saved, there's a, there's a battle going on right now. A battle between God and Satan. Satan wants you to join him in hell. Satan doesn't want you to follow Jesus. He hates God. It's not that Satan hates you. He hates God. And he's jealous of God which is why he was overtaken in pride to begin with. But if you've never trusted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you can today. It's as simple as ABC. A, you have to acknowledge that you're a sinner. The Bible says, all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. There's none righteous, no, not one. For by one man, Adam, sin entered into the world, and death by sin, and so death is passed upon all men, for all have sinned. I sinned, you sinned. We were born sinners. We were born wrong. That's why Jesus told Nicodemus, you must be born again. How do you get born again? A, acknowledge that you're a sinner. B, believe that Jesus came to this world, to this earth, that he died on the cross of Calvary, the death you and I deserve to die, that he was buried in a borrowed tomb, but he conquered death, hell, and the grave when he rose again the third day. And today he's ascended up into heaven 
making intercession for all who believe. And see, and this is very important, you need to call upon the name of the Lord. The Bible says in Romans 10, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done that? If not, you can do that right now. Bow your heads with me in prayer before we go and have an invitation. Father in heaven, I pray that during this invitation that decisions would be made in your favor, that, Father, people would come to know the pardon and remission of sin that only comes in Christ. And, Father, I pray for those who maybe are here, who have backslidden, who have lost their burden and uh, their heart no longer burns within them. Father, I pray that you would draw them unto yourself where they can confess their sin and rededicate their life to you. Whatever's done, I pray you'll get the glory in Jesus' name.